Who is Jesus? That is a question that has been asked about Jesus since he was born. Even his own disciples have been wrestling with this question. After they saw Jesus calm the terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee, they asked each other, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus, he doesn't fit into any other categories. He's not like anyone else. This remains as true today as it did then. There's no person in history who has caused more questions to be asked and at the same time answers more questions than Jesus Christ. As we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew this morning, this is a question that people are asking themselves. Who is Jesus? So flip in your Bible to Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. Matthew 14, verse 1. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. What? That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. There is more than one Herod mentioned in the pages of the Bible. This Herod is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great, who was the guy who was in charge at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod Antipas, he's now in charge, and he is the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. The territory that he is in charge of are shown in red, on the map that you have up on the screen there. A tetrarch is a term that meant the ruler or governor of a fourth part of a province. The term came to be used in common language to refer to a secondary ruler. A tetrarch had a tremendous amount of power over the district that he was ruler of, but he was subordinate to the emperor or the Caesar above him. So he was a big fish in a little pond, so to speak. What are these reports, though, that Herod is hearing about Jesus? We could include everything that has been mentioned in the story up to this point as the answer to that question. As we've noted before, Jesus is not some backwater, obscure, barely noticeable, half-insane crackpot pulling off some parlor tricks to entertain a few onlookers. Instead, Jesus is a major disruption of the status quo. He's drawing huge crowds of people wherever he goes, doing astonishing miracles that no one imagined possible, and teaching with an authority and a knowledge never before witnessed. Well, people have been speculating about who Jesus is and where he got these incredible powers. Some think he's Elijah or one of the other prophets of long ago who has come back to life. Some think he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some have other ideas. It's interesting that when Jesus visited his childhood hometown of Nazareth, which we looked at last time in Matthew chapter 13, 53, those people, you might remember, they refused to accept that Jesus was anyone other than the carpenter's kid that they had grown up with. In contrast to that, everywhere else, people are having difficulty identifying exactly who Jesus is. One thing they agree on, though, is he is no ordinary person. There has never been anyone like him before. He's unique. 
Everyone is grasping for explanations and speculating about who Jesus is. Even Herod has an opinion about who Jesus is, as we see here in verse 2. He said, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. In Luke's account of this same story, he notes that Herod is perplexed meaning he's confused and he's disturbed by this idea that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Herod is the person who had John the Baptist killed. He gave the order to have his head cut off. He saw the severed head with his own eyes. How could this be John? It didn't make any sense. But this is the theory that Herod's own guilty conscience keeps reaching for. Herod is a haunted man. He's haunted by his own guilt. He heard John the Baptist, I mean, he knew that John the Baptist was an innocent man. He knew John was a prophet of God. He knew he had done a very bad thing by ordering that John be executed. He can't shake this nagging guilt in his own conscience. And that guilt keeps dragging him back to the scene of his crime every time it has the opportunity. Have you ever done something bad which really bothered you? And afterward, when something would come up that was even remotely connected to that bad thing that you did, you immediately keep jumping to the conclusion that it was somehow pointing back to the bad thing that you did. A guilty conscience, it can be one of the most disturbing things there is to live with. It can rob us of peace and confidence. It can keep us up at night worrying about not being found out and how we're going to keep the bad thing hidden. We're constantly looking over our shoulder. It haunts us. The old milk commercials played off that idea of a guilty conscience really well. Do you remember those? Uh, the, The wife looks across the breakfast table at her husband and says his name with an accusing tone, and then he starts confessing all of these things that he thinks she's on to him about. The wedding ring that he gave her is a fake diamond. He served time in prison before she knew him, and so on. It turned out that all she's upset about is that he used up all of the milk so she doesn't have any for her cereal. Proverbs 28.1 It says, the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee, though no one pursues, and isn't that how our guilty conscience works? Referring to the peace and the joy that comes from a clear conscience, Benjamin Franklin said, a good conscience is a continual Christmas. Herod isn't feeling any Christmas joy at the moment. He's feeling the weight of his guilt. Well, in verse 3, Matthew, he tells the story of John the Baptist's death, which explains Herod's guilty conscience. In verse 3, he says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. John the Baptist had been confronting the most powerful man in the region, Herod, about his sin of taking his brother's wife as his own. The story's told that one of his, on one of his trips to Rome, 
Herod stopped in to visit his brother Philip, and Herod was immediately captivated by the beauty of his brother's wife Herodias. He fell in love with her, and they conspired together to leave her husband and become Herod's wife instead. Well, everyone knew this soap opera story about how Herodias became Herod's wife, but no one was foolish enough to say anything about it except for John the Baptist. John the Baptist was boldly confronting them in public about their sin, and that landed him in prison. Verse 5, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. It says Herod wanted to kill John, but he's afraid that it would cause a riot among the common people who believe John is a prophet of God. Now we learn from Mark's telling of the story that the pressure to kill John the Baptist was actually coming from Herodias, Herod's illegitimate wife who has nursed a very bitter grudge against John because of the things that he had said about her and Herod. On Herod's birthday, verse 6, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. This must have been One amazing dance that the daughter of Herodias performed for Herod and his guests on his birthday. He's so pleased, it says, with her performance that he offers to give her anything she wants. The sensual nature of the dance combined with Herod having far too much to drink may have had something to do with that. But it's at this point that the story takes a very diabolical turn in verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Herodias' daughter consults her mother about what she should ask for. And her mother tells her without any hesitation, Ask for the head of John the Baptist. Can you imagine the depth of this woman's bitterness and hatred for John the Baptist? When given the opportunity for her daughter to ask for virtually anything, she demands that she ask for the death of this man. Does she really hate John that much? Or does she hate who and what John represents? Is her hatred of John instead an expression of her hatred for herself and who she has become? One of the ways that we deal with our guilt and shame is to blame others and turn our self-loathing into hatred directed at others. John the Baptist has been a truth speaker in Herodias' life, confronting her and calling her out about the awful things that she's done, reminding her that she's answerable to God for her sin. She can shut the mouth of John the Baptist by having him killed, but she can't shut the mouth of her own conscience that will continue to accuse her. She can blame others for what she is guilty of, but she will always know the truth in her heart. She can never outrun that. Well, the girl says to Herod, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And verse 9, the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. Herod is distressed. The word means to feel sorrow and regret. 
He had not expected her to ask for this of all things. But he couldn't back out of the deal. Everyone had heard what he said. He had to go through with it. Herod has had many opportunities to do what was right before now, but he never acted on those opportunities. Instead, he's given in to the inertia of other things in his life. Pleasure, convenience, laziness, power, pressure from his wife and others, political expedience, pride. And now he finds himself trapped into doing something he never imagined doing. It's a warning for us. We need to do the right thing while we have the opportunity. That opportunity will not always be there. And we may find ourselves trapped into doing the unimagined. The same way that he has found himself trapped here. On verse 10, he granted her request and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. So John's head is cut off. It's brought to the girl on a platter just as she has asked, and it is hard to imagine the gruesomeness of this scene. Here's the head you wanted. The girl gives John's head to her mother. Is Herodes now satisfied? Has she now silenced the guilt of her own conscience? Has the ending of this man's life silenced the voices in her head and her heart? Has her anger and hatred been satisfied? No. There is only one way to silence the voices, the guilt, the conviction, the haunting of bad things done. That's coming clean before the Lord. We need to stop running from Him. Acknowledge our sin. Confess it to Him. Allow Him to wash us clean. That's what Jesus Christ came to this planet for. To provide a way for us to have our guilty conscience cleansed and to be forgiven. God can't be killed. Many people have tried to kill God. But all have failed. They can kill someone who represents God, but they can't kill God. There's no way to get rid of Him. And really, why try to kill God anyway when He loves us so much and He's done so much for us? He sent His own precious Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to remove our guilt and give us a new life. But that's the way the human mind works. Verse 12 says, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus is sickened by the news of what happened to John the Baptist. The violence that human beings inflict on one another breaks the Lord's heart. This is not how he intended for us to use our talents and our energies. He made us in his own image, gifting us with such tremendous potential for good, giving us intelligence and creativity far above all of the other creatures on this planet. And we've chosen to use it for such self-serving ends. 
says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. It's getting late in the day and the place where they are is described as remote. It's desolate, uninhabited. There's no facilities there. So the disciples, they suggested Jesus that it's time to call it quits for the day so that the people can go into the surrounding villages to get something to eat. Many of these people, they have traveled a considerable distance, much too far for them to just run home and grab something to eat. It will be a very long hike for many of them to get back home. From a practical point of view, considering the circumstances, the disciples' suggestion, it makes good sense. The disciples, they've not done anything wrong by making this suggestion. They're simply offering the best solution they can think of given their understanding of the situation. But Jesus, he has something else in mind. In verse 16, Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So Jesus, he doesn't respond to the disciples saying, oh, good idea, you guys. I completely lost track of time. Yes, let's send the people away for the day so they can get food and shelter in the surrounding villages. Instead, Jesus looks at them and he says in this very matter-of-fact way, you give them something to eat. And I picture Jesus saying this to them as though it is something that they have done a hundred times before. Just like, it's, a, it's like a, not a big deal. You give them something to eat. But it isn't received that way by the disciples. The disciples are dumbfounded by his suggestion. You have got to be joking, Jesus. We don't even have enough food for ourselves. The disciples, they've been with Jesus for quite a while now. They've witnessed him do a lot of amazing things. They've watched him do the impossible again and again. Now, though, when Jesus asks them to do something that appears impossible, all they can think about is how impossible the thing is. They've forgotten something very important. They've forgotten who is telling them to do this. They've forgotten who is with them. They still are not getting who Jesus is. Just a quick side thought on this. is: Have you noticed how quickly we forget what God has already done in our lives. We need to work on remembering God's faithfulness to us in the past and know that He's going to continue to be faithful to us in the future. He got us through the tight spots in the past. He's going to get us through the tight spots we're in now too. We need to keep trusting Him. Well, the disciples, they tell Jesus they have a grand total of five small loaves of bread and two small fish, not even enough to feed them, much less a crowd of thousands of people. We learn from John's account of this story that the bread and the fish are from a boy 
who was in the crowd that day. This is in all likelihood the boy's lunch that his mother had packed for him that morning. Jesus, we have a kid's lunch here. He's got two tuna fish sandwiches. Jesus is up to something here. He's seeking to teach his disciples something. And the something that he's seeking to teach them is not about the catering business. It's not about how to make lots of food to feed a huge crowd. He's seeking to teach them something about himself, something about who he is. Verse 18 says, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. So Jesus thanks God the Father for what they have. And then he gives the bread and the fish to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. It says there were about 5,000 men in the crowd. And then Matthew points out that this number didn't include the women and children who were also part of the crowd that day. That means that the actual number of people fed was easily two to three times more than the 5,000 men. It says they all ate and were satisfied. That word translated satisfied, it means they were all filled. They all had as much as they wanted. God meets their need in such abundance that there's actually more food left over than what they started with. They pick up 12 large basketfuls of leftovers. How did this miracle happen? Some skeptics have suggested that when Jesus began to distribute the bread and the fish to the crowd, that it inspired a tremendous expression of generosity among the people who then began bringing out all of the food that they each had stashed away and began sharing it with each other, kind of like it was a giant Coca-Cola commercial from the 1970s. <laughs> or from the old children's book, Stone Soup if you remember that story. Now, that might give you a warm, fuzzy feeling inside to imagine that that's what happened, but that's not what's described here. That's not what happened here. Exactly how this miracle was accomplished is not explained to us, but there is no doubt that the bread and the fish were supernaturally multiplied by Jesus somehow so that everyone had more than enough to eat their fill. The feeding of the 5,000, this story, is the only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, knowing that should alert us to its importance. There's more to this miracle than simply the feeding of a giant crowd of people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. It says something about Jesus other than his skill as a food caterer. 
in this story, people often focus on the miracle of feeding the large crowd. And it's impressive. But I don't think that's where we're supposed to focus our attention. Our attention is supposed to be on Jesus. This miracle tells us who Jesus is. He's the bread of life who has come from heaven to give us eternal life. The Apostle John, he records what Jesus said after this miracle. In John chapter 6, we can begin in verse 31, uh, the people there, they say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In closing this morning, are you like Herodias? Are you angry at God and those who represent him? Do, do you wish there was no God, that you could just blot him out of existence? I used to feel that way. I knew God was asking me to give in to him and follow him, but I didn't want to do it. And it made me mad to even think about it. Like Herodias, I took out my anger and frustration on others. I didn't want God to exist. I didn't want him imposing his will on me. I wanted him to mind his own business and just leave me alone. I didn't understand that he wanted to help me rather than hurt me. He loved me and wanted the best for me, but I couldn't see that. All I could see was what I thought I was going to lose. I was blind to what I was going to gain. Are you like the people in those days wondering who Jesus is? He's the bread of life. The story about him feeding this large crowd of people tells us about who Jesus is. He's God the Son who became a human being to live among us, to teach us who God is and what he's like and to be the innocent one who died so that the guilty, you and I, could go free. God loves you. He wants to give you a new life, a better life than you could ever have otherwise. You can begin a new life with God with a simple prayer. If you're done running and hiding and hating, if you want your guilt taken away, if you want to have peace, if you want to know God personally as your loving Father, if you want to have that food from heaven, that satisfies the soul that we will never be hungry again, as Jesus has promised, then pray with me. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me.
forgive me for my sins. I'm going to follow you from now on. Change me into the person you want me to be. Father, I pray for everyone here, all of us, that you would fill us to overflowing with your goodness today. Remind us of who you are, Jesus, that you are the bread of life. May we feast on you, Lord. May we find our wholeness in you, our satisfaction in you. Ask that you would bless and pour out your goodness on us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.